Warning, real life, real crime, the podcast should be for listeners that are 18 years of older, as each episode may contain strong adult language and descriptions of acts of violence or of a sexual nature that were told to me by the victims of the crimes or the criminals who perpetrated the crimes against the victim. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our first ever bonus episode for patron members. I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. First of all, I want to thank y'all for being patron members. It's awesome. It allows us some financial freedom to grow this podcast and offer more merchandise and stuff like that but your support's invaluable and we love you and we appreciate you and just want to let you know that so i hope you enjoy this episode but i want to warn you even beyond my regular warning this is a tough one to hear y'all i mean it's graphic but i'm not describing anything that i didn't see with my own eyes and that didn't happen so let's get started In 2004, I was working as a detective for the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office when I received a call of a 10-7 white female, 17 years old, south of Denham Springs, Louisiana. Now, 10-7 is a dead body, a radio term or cop jargon for a dead body. And I was requested to come on scene to investigate it because it was under suspicious circumstances. And I arrived, and there's already family members there. And uniformed deputy was there, and the Acadian ambulance was there. And I get there, and the uniformed deputy came up and told me, he said, look, 17-year-old white female, nine months pregnant, dead on the floor in the bedroom. So I'm like, oh, shit, here we go, right? You know, um... I asked him, I said, did you see anything? He said, no, man. He said, I, you know, I did what you trained me to do. I went in, and it was obvious that she's dead. And once, and you, she didn't have a pulse. We just backed out, and I've secured it since. He said, the family's here. They're extremely upset, naturally. So I went ahead and told him to call for the coroner and, and get him in route. I went towards the residence and was stopped by the family members and the mom was in hysterics and the dad's trying to calm her down and the mom's saying she's dead she's dead um she wouldn't answer the phone and she's dead i stopped and said ma'am so 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 sorry for your loss i said but if you can just give me a few minutes i need to go in and look at things and i'll come back and i'll talk to y'all so I made entry into the residence and I followed the deputy in and he took me back. It's a nice home, two-story home on a private lot, no neighbors around. And the deputy brought me back into a downstairs bedroom and he said, what happened was she's, she's 17 and she's pregnant and she's pregnant from her high school sweetheart boyfriend she's a senior this year but she had to stay home now because she's so pregnant nine months pregnant she's on bed rest 
and he is a senior also, and he's at school today, and they were getting married. The family's very, very Christian, and there's no way they were going to have an, an abortion, and they're getting married, and they saw her and talked to her this morning. She was doing fine, and they left and went to school, and the mom called around 10 o'clock, and she didn't answer just to check on her. The mom called to check on her because she's on bed rest. And so she called again and she didn't answer. And so she came home to check on her and she found her on the floor in between the bed and the wall, obviously dead. And, and she called 911. And he said, you know, I got here and got the mom out of the house, et cetera. So we walk in and walk into the bedroom and it's a, a double bed, a small bedroom. And I couldn't see her, right? As you walk into the room, the bed is on the middle wall to your left-hand side, and there's a walkway to the left, which goes to an ensuite bathroom. And then there's a window on the opposite side of the bed, and there was a space in between the bed and that window. And there was a dresser on to my right-hand side at the foot of the bed. And the room had a ceiling fan with a light. And so I walk in, and I look around the corner of the bed, and there's this girl, young girl, and she's way pregnant, right? I mean, just when they said nine months, I mean, she must have been due to deliver any day because she, she was extremely pregnant. But I didn't touch her yet. I, I just was looking over to see if there were any obvious signs of bullet wounds or stab wounds or anything like that. And I didn't see it. I didn't see any blood. I didn't. There, were, there was no blood on the floor. There was no blood on the bed. Nothing that said there was any type of struggle, but but that didn't mean anything, right? I mean, she could have been choked to death, or they could have smothered her, or whatever. So I let her stay and called out Louisiana State Police Crime Lab, and they came and photographed the scene, and the coroner showed up, and after Louisiana State Police got done processing the scene, we put her in a body bag. And like I said, she was just, our stomach was just super, super pregnant. And we sealed her in a body bag and locked the tag on it. And while this is going on, while the state police were processing the crime scene, I talked to the family. And that by this time, the, the young man, the father of the baby, had arrived on scene. And he's extremely distraught. And But I talked to the family members, and I interviewed them. And the... They said that, you know, she was home, she was on bed rest, and like I said, they had talked to her that morning, she was feeling fine, there was absolutely nothing wrong, and so I'm already going through suspects, right? And I got the the father, the boy, uh, to the side, and I asked him, I said, when's the last time you saw her? And he said, I saw her this morning before school, I kissed her and told her I loved her, and she kissed me back. And he said, I walked out, and I said, you you haven't been back since. He said, no. I said, y'all didn't argue or anything. He said, no, we didn't. And he said, I mean, she told me she loved me. And I left. I said, so did you, when you left here, where did you go? He said, I went straight to school. I said, did you stay at school the entire time until, until they came and notified you? He said, yes, I did not leave. And so I talked to the parents, and 
like I said, they're very, very upset. And they again explained the, the relationship between the boy and the girl and that they were getting married and they were going to raise the baby and the family was going to help them raise the baby. Real loving Christian family. And they're super, super distraught, naturally. And so I went to the residence. I checked the doors and windows. And even though the family said they didn't lock them, uh, I mean, they lived in the country. They never had any problems. But I checked just to see if there was any type of forced entry anywhere or anything. I, I couldn't find anything wrong. Plus, the crime lab processed for prints, et cetera. And finally, after everything was done, we... Like I said, put her in the body bag and wheeled her out. And she was sent to the place where we do all of our autopsies, which is what place called Seal, S-E-A-L-E, Funeral Home in Denham Springs. Back then it was. The autopsies were done in a building back behind the main funeral home where the crematorium was housed. And they also had the coolers for the bodies. But they had a separate room. Uh, just for autopsies that was separate from where they prepare the, the other regular bodies for funerals where they did them bomb and all that but there was a separate room strictly for autopsies but the autopsies was set for the next day because the doctor that does them is also did them for all the baton rage and, and the, some other surrounding areas and he needed to be scheduled and y'all i'm not going to give the name of the uh the doctor the pathologist that did all these autopsies for us back then only out of respect for the man he probably was the most intelligent person i've ever met in my entire life but he was an he was an old man at the time and he had done thousands of autopsies through his career and not only was he a forensic pathologist and a md medical doctor he also held law degrees and all kinds of other degrees just a genius and it if I ever was going to go back then, it would have been Make Me a Millionaire, whatever that show was where you get to phone a friend, this guy would have been my guy to call to ask because he knew everything about everything, right? And he had his wife that would come with him to the autopsies, and she had a beginning of Alzheimer's, and she was a retired nurse. And anyway, I'm not going to say it because a lot of things when I go into the episodes and I talk about the autopsies, a lot of it is just just hard to hear and some of us really vulgar and i don't want to disrespect him i'm gonna tell everything that happened but i don't want to disrespect him or have people get mad at him or anything like that for some of his thoughts and things that he said but he was he was damn good and a genius period so that being said the autopsy was scheduled the next morning i arrive uh we get to the building and the doc shows up with his wife and she sometimes would sit in the room for the autopsy and and sometimes she would she would sit out in in the foyer on the couch but he would arrive and you go in through the double doors there's a little front sitting room and then the first door on the left goes into where the crematorium was then you continue straight it's a narrow hallway and on the right hand side there was a bathroom and and then once you get past that section there's a wall where the body coolers are i think they had six of them total three stack three on top of three and then 
just past that to the right were two sets of embalming tables where they did the regular bodies and prepared them for funerals. And it's tile floors from that point back. And then there, there was a doorway to the left, which went into the autopsy room. So we get there, we go in, The they already have the body bag on the table. And of course, like I told you, it's sealed uh, and locked with an evidence number. And that's photographed at the scene. And the first thing we do is a doc suits up in his scrubs and we go in and we make sure the tag matches from the day before and we take a photograph of it to maintain the chain of custody of evidence. And then he cuts the lock and opens the body bag and photographs, removes the girl's clothing her she had on pajamas i forgot to mention that she had on uh pajama bottoms and top and the first thing they do is is they strip you naked and the doc's looking down at her and with me is assistant coroner joe harrell now i'm gonna tell you about joe harrell great guy and he's a good old country boy from livingston parish and he always wore his white cowboy hat and he's a good Christian guy, really didn't curse or anything, but he was very intelligent and very good at what he did. We worked so many death scenes together over the years. And so anyway, Joe and I are good friends, and we're standing there watching the doc start to do his thing, and the doc's walking around taking pictures of the body, the naked body, and he stops now, remember, let me describe him better for you. He's a little short, old, ball-headed man with glasses, and he would put on his scrubs, and by the time, or at least halfway through every autopsy, his his pants would fall down, his scrub pants, and he'd be there in his underwear, and he's standing there with his pants around his ankles, and it never bothered him, right? I mean, he's one of those people that is so smart. I think his, his social skills were just almost non-existent. He's just operated on a brain level that was much above us and he didn't really give a damn what anyone thought about what he said and what he did but like it it doesn't take away from the fact he's he's the best i ever worked with anyway so he's in his scrubs he's walking around he's photographing the body and he hasn't said anything yet and joe and i are just standing there kind of watching being quiet and he stops and he looks up and he said and i'll never forget it and this is graphic y'all but he said Y'all eat pussy in Livingston Parish. And that's like the last thing I ever expected this old man to say, right? This doctor, lawyer, lifelong forensic pathologist. And he's looking at us and he's dead serious. And I, I just, it shocked, the shit, it shocked the shit out of me. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. And, and Joe was, Joe was like, uh, uh, and he said, no, I said, I, he said, I need to know if y'all eat pussy in Livingston Parish. Now, the doc's wife was in the room, the the, the lady that has the beginning of Alzheimer's, uh, uh, the retired nurse, nurse, and I was like, uh, doc, I don't even know what you want me to say. He said, do you perform cunnilings on this side of the river in Livingston Parish? Do y'all eat pussy? And I said, holy shit, doc. I said, is this a trick question? I said, I mean, and, and Joe was just stuttering. He was going, oh, and and I was like, doc, I mean, I said, you know, uh, yeah, sure we do, right? And and he, he said, well, there's a reason I'm asking you this, Woody. And I said, I would love to hear it. He said, when a woman is pregnant at a certain stage in the pregnancy, if 
a man is performing cunnilings on her. He quit using the P word. Man is performing cunnilings on her and blows air into the vagina. He said if the air gets in between whatever and whatever, he said it'll kill the female instantly. And he said that's why pregnant women don't get in jacuzzis, he said, in case that air gets jetted in there by accident and, and that space, he said it'll kill them instantly. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, he was always coming up with, with some fact of knowledge that I had no idea about. And poor Joe Harold, he was red as a beat and he didn't know what to say. And I said, well, doc, I really appreciate you sharing that information with me, right? So, and then he gets to work. Now, let me tell you about an autopsy. Absolutely the most invasive thing that could ever be done to a human being, whether dead or alive or whatever. I don't care if I get murdered and you know it's a murder or whatever. I don't care if they never solve the murder because I don't want an autopsy done to me. But, you know, I've been to hundreds of them and they're just... It's just bad, but it is a necessary evil. So the first thing he does after he photographs the body and has the weight and which is done on the table, the table has a scale built in and takes measurements, etc. He gets out a handheld bone saw, which is it, it's it's a he can hold it in one hand and has a round blade on the top now. You turn it on, and you can hear that it's on, but it won't cut unless it touches something. So the blade doesn't spin freely. But he starts at the head on the scalp line and takes that bone saw, and it shit, it's worse than, much worse than hearing the dentist drilling. And it's as he digging in to the skull, and he makes that circle all the way around the skull. Now, not only is it... Uh, I'm sorry. Let me back up. Before the saw, he takes the scalpel and he rings he rings the face and does a cut behind the ear lines, cut on the back of the head, and literally pulls the whole face off and then puts it down on the chest where it's still connected at the neck. But it's literally scalps, takes the whole face off and scalps it down. And that's the first part that's unbelievable, right? That they could peel your face off like that. And then the skull is exposed, and then he begins his sawing. And it goes, the noise is, is just unimaginable. But as he's doing the sawing, y'all, it throws up bone dust in the air. And we're standing in this small room, and it throws, I mean, the, the saw is cutting bone. It's literally grinding through the skull, and he makes the loop all the way around the skull to the back. Till he's done and uh, this time there's a discernible amount of bone dust in the air and uh it has a taste uh, like a burning smell to it when he's doing it uh, i mean it's just unavoidable as part of an autopsy but then he takes a screwdriver and a hammer and he taps the screwdriver into the crack on the skull where he's done the sawing through the bone and he taps it in and pushes down with pressure and it goes literally it pops the skull pops off when the suction breaks it makes a popping noise just like that and there he takes it off and the brain's exposed and then he cuts out the brain takes it out weighs it looks for anything abnormal and you know takes a slide uh, a section off of it or whatever and then 
he goes down and makes a cut from the neck all the way down to the the end, end of the pelvic area and then down each arm to the side and peels the body open and then the trusty old bone saw comes out again again and it makes the cut down to the sternum etc but let me back up and digress on this young lady she was nine months pregnant right so i had never been to an autopsy on a woman that, that was this pregnant before and so he's making the cut and y'all human fat is actually like a, a bright yellow almost not orange but it, between a bright yellow and an orange color and this girl was really swollen up and so when they cut her open i mean it's thick 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 yellow color and of course the blood you know drains out on the table and they have drains on the table where it goes out but so he cuts her open and gets to the chest takes out the organs different organs and weighs them etc but not the heart yet and he goes down and i'll never forget when he made the incision through her abdomen and he pulled out the baby and it was in a fetal position naturally and it had a full head of black hair and was fully developed i mean literally looked like an eight or nine pound baby and was a baby boy and he cut the umbilical and he weighed the baby and he did all that stuff with it. And just, that was by far the toughest autopsy that I had ever seen. And he, and he continued to process the body and work through it. And then, like I said, they take out all the organs and they put them in a the bag. But when he got to the heart, uh, it, at this time, he, he said a few things as he's working. Most of the time, he'd work quiet. And, of course, his pants are down around his ankle by this time. But he's all into it. And, and he's weighing things. And he's talking to himself out loud. And uh, he's doing a process of elimination. There's no gunshot wounds. There's no stab wounds. Her neck was not broken. So she wasn't choked to death. There was no particular hemorrhaging um, in the eyes, which is, is caused whenever you choke somebody and, and the, the blood vessels in your eyes burst from the lack of oxygen. And so he's talking to himself. He's like, okay, y'all. He said, no, I don't know here. You know, we're doing a process of elimination now. And in the end, when he got to the heart, he came back and thank God. He said, well, here's your, here's your issue. And he cut it open and it was... Uh, thick blood clots and he said this is your cause of death pulmonary embolism and he said the the worst thing they could ever do for a female is put her on bed rest he said i have disagreed with it for so many years because a girl this girl was so swollen etc and you put her on bed rest and she developed blood clots what happened is he tried traced it down to her legs the the blood clots broke loose and went to her heart and killed her he said she probably didn't live 10 seconds after the clot hit her heart and that's you know she probably tried to get up and and that split second of pain and that was what made her fall to the floor so he said that's it and the cause of death is uh, pulmonary embolism to the heart and but I was thankful. I was really, really thankful that it wasn't a, a murder. It wasn't a homicide. And but the the funeral worker, home worker, director, if you will, was in there and 
told him what it was, and he said, good. He said, the family's here. I'm, you want to come talk to them? And so I did. And I told him, I said, listen, she died from a pulmonary embolism, and I said it was quick and painless. And this funeral director says, and I, I'll never forget this, told the parents and the, and the young man that was standing there, he said, okay, y'all, as far as the funeral goes, he said, do you want the baby buried with the mother? Like we can do an open casket and put the baby in the mama's arms and bury them together. And I was like, fuck, I'm out of here. And then the, the, I didn't need to hear that. So I excused myself and left and I went back and to finish up the autopsy, all of it, he sews everything back up the, the middle of the body and actually put, puts the top of the skull back on and puts the face back over the skull, pulls it tight, does some stitching in the back, and that's how they are able to present the body at as an open casket at the funeral. Of course, the funeral home people do the makeup and all that, but I had had some requests to do, actually several requests to do an episode where an autopsy was involved and to explain the autopsy process. So I just did it and you heard the roughest one I ever saw. I'm still thankful to this day for that family and and that girl and that baby that it wasn't a homicide. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of real life, real crime, the podcast. It's your bonus episode for being a patron member. And I appreciate you if it was too much or y'all don't want me any more autopsy episodes, which a lot of most of the homicides, I will do the autopsies in them. But if, if it was too much, let me know. If you liked it, let me know. Either way, we appreciate you. And I thank you for being a patron member. And until next time, I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Thanks. Oh, no sugar in my coffee.